Welcome to a special Wild Endeavors interlude episode celebrating International Podcast Month. I'm Thomas Marsetti, DM and producer of Wild Endeavors. We are an actual play audio drama featuring mainly Dungeon World and Dungeons and Dragons in a world all our own. International Podcast Month is a celebration of the love of podcasting, with a focus on marginalized creators and building communities together to boost each other's voices. Needless to say, we're very excited to be a part of this endeavor. Listeners of our podcast will notice this interlude builds on several interweaving storylines we're creating with our various campaigns and one-shots. If this is your first endeavor with us, don't worry, the story can stand on its own. And now, an interlude. The Glimmer of Glass. The night air was just beginning to hum, the scampering sounds of children's feet giving way to the subtle shuffle of people on the verge of being an impolite degree of drunk. From her very affordable room on the third floor of the Leaping Lion Inn, Alessiria Gallarine watched the first signs of Praham's nightlife yawn and stretch its way across the square and down the streets. The Primarchy is the largest nation-state in the land of Arya. As befitting its station as the capital, Praham is the largest, most extravagant city in the Primarchy. The soaring towers and massive marble colonnades of the city are dazzling during the day and truly stunning at night. Light from floating globes and open windows refract off the shining buildings to dance like the sun on water. As beautiful as it is, Alessaria struggles to keep her eyes from scanning, looking for trouble in the shadows, the edges of blind spots, and the faces of people in the crowd. Alessaria is a Justicar. She is an embodiment of the Primarchy's laws, and even on her nights off, she takes it seriously. On the surface... Praham is fairly quiet for a city of almost 90,000, with the Primarchy's elite law enforcement, the Justicar, and the High Court, the Twelve Tables, both headquartered in the city. Crime rate is dramatically lower than the few other cities of its size. But the Shining City still has its nooks and crannies, dark places where determined people still find ways to get their hands dirty. As such... Elisiria and the Justicar spend most of their time in these grim and gritty aspects of the city. So when Elisiria's courier lens alerts her, she knows her quiet night off is no more. Golden peace. She slips the enchanted monocle from a special case on her belt. She turns away from the window, fits the thin gold frame lens into place, and activates it with her code phrase. Memento Vivere. The courier grows warm. A shimmer passes before her eyes. And then standing in front of her is a ghostly version of her old friend. His hair is long on top, swept back and falling just below and behind his ears. The sides of his head are shaved smooth like a terrace ball. As always, his silver Justicar's breastplate gleams from beneath his long black duster. The golden wings wrap delicately around the tops of his shoulders, marking him as the head of the Justicar order. Justicar Marshal Quintus Arias for Justicar Elsiria Gallerine. Report to the domicile known as Arborage immediately. A team of Magistar are already on the site. Ventus Vero, Justicar. The ghostly image of the man vanishes, and Elsiria's brows furrow as she considers the empty space. Did he sound strange to you, Buttons? Elisiria turns to a small clockwork chinchilla sitting on a table near the door. The tiny gears inside it spin up, 
Its little obsidian eyes disappear behind tiny metal lids and then reappear in an exaggerated blink. These tiny automata, made by Thistle Torque Enterprises, were mostly toys for children, but their ability to store sound in crystals made them excellent messengers. They were not uncommon in a city like Prahem. What was uncommon was talking to them as if they were sentient. No, it's not that. Something's off about him. I mean more than usual. Alisiria and Quintus had been close once. He was like the little brother, or over-eager puppy she never had. All that changed a couple years ago, when he chased a pair of fugitives up near Barathus. He came back with only one of the fugitives, and stories of a valley untouched by sun or star, a blind god, and a lich. Then the Emperor promoted him unexpectedly, and he and Alisiria grew further apart. I don't like it. There is no reason for the Justicar Marshal to personally hand out assignments. There is no reason for him to be so vague. Unless he thought someone else might see the message too. But that would mean he's trying to hide something from someone inside the Justicar or the Twelve Tables. He was so formal. Like I wasn't the one who held his hair back when we were cadets and he had too much to drink. But then he said, Ventos Vero. Elisiria looks to Buttons as if expecting an answer. Buttons' gears spin and click as it tilts its head to look sideways at her. <laughs> it's an old joke between us. Before your time. It means... I don't know what it means here, but I don't think I'm going to like it. Alisiria had never really taken to the trappings of the Justicar. Some of her compatriots on the force spent hours making sure the silver eagles on the shoulders of their long coats shined like mirrors, and many had adopted a way of holding themselves, chest out, shoulders just back, hands on their belts, holding open their jackets, to make sure everyone saw their silver breastplate. Alisiria preferred a more subdued approach. In a nod to Prahum's current fashion trends, she wore dark brown, form-fitting coveralls. Her silver breastplate was usually covered by the poncho-like tabards that were all the rage right now, though she eschewed the popular garishly bright colors, opting for a muted lavender. People, even innocent people, acted differently around the law. Alisiria liked to blend in a little, to observe and talk to people before they realized what she was after. Standing on the square, looking up at the harborage, Alisiria got the feeling that the building also liked to go unnoticed. Is it possible to be unabashedly, ostentatiously rich and perfectly inconspicuous? What I mean is, there are three wings, five stories, at least ten balcony gardens, and each one of those the size of half the entire Leaping Lion. The courtyard is paved with marble, nicer than most of the jewelry in the Aculite district. And are those blue mosaic tiles or blue gems that seem to decorate everything? And yet, it's all perfectly middle of the road. Well, I guess perfectly middle of this road. All the horses are probably trained to shit in gold buckets so they don't dirty the place up. It's like they want people to pass this place over. The investigation inside the Harbridge had been short. The staff and guards were tight-lipped, no doubt on direction from the Nobilis. This was not a surprise. As head of the household staff, and therefore responsible for any mistakes that were made, Nobilises were often very difficult to deal with. On top of that, there was almost nothing to physically investigate. Jasper Feathermore was renting one of the Harbridge's suites. For what, the staff would not say. They were also quiet as to the reason a private home was renting suites in the first place. Featherstone vanished from the premises, and the guard outside his room was found to have been charmed. It had been a powerful spell. The guard still remembered nothing. The room Featherstone was renting is empty. The room is hexagonal. 
In its center, slightly recessed in the floor, is a circular blue couch that could easily seat 30 people. Small tables on each wall could accommodate food or drink service. Only one very expensive bottle of wine and one glass was found in the room. Buttons, play back what Magistar Tiro said about the residue he found. By the time the other guards got there, Featherstone was gone. When we arrived, I found residual magical energy in the room that indicates an anti-magic field recently covered most of the center of the room. But that's about it. No other magic was cast in this room. There's no sign of a struggle. And furthermore, Featherstone had a warded key. It gave him access to the harborage, but also gave the harborage a way to track him wherever he went. The key vanished shortly after the guard was charmed. So how do you make a magic key disappear without magic? Yeah, but it would have reappeared as soon as the anti-magic field dropped. As far as I know, there's no way to destroy a magic item without magic. Certainly not, I would think, without leaving any trace. And equally problematic, how do you make a body disappear without magic? With all the security wards and guards in that place, virtually all of the normal ways of sneaking around with a body would be useless. Remember that case from last year, the Sax Slayer? Had that little coin purse that was really a little portal to a pocket dimension? They'd kill someone and stuff the body in the purse and dispose of them later in secret. Apparently, the harbors is even warded against those kinds of packs. There was apparently an issue with a group of thieves posing as representatives of the security firm that serviced the harborage. Supposedly, they walked right in the front door, stole some very expensive items from various clients. You're right. I've got too much work to do to reminisce. I have a name. We've done more with less. And thanks to you, Buttons, we have this. Whatever it is. It is a small sliver of glass, slightly curved like a crescent moon. Buttons had found it in Featherstone's room while Alasiria was questioning the household staff. Buttons had a tendency to pick up shiny objects and stick them in its metal cheeks. And sometimes, like this time, it yielded helpful clues that others would have missed. The shard didn't match any of the glassware in the room, and the tiny slice of smooth glass had etchings on it. As far as clues go, it's less than helpful. On the bright side, if I botch this case, I won't have to worry about ever working a case again. No wonder Quintus was acting so weird. In addition to the strange circumstances surrounding Featherstone's disappearance, Elisiria learned that the harborage belonged to Precep Tenosiparis, son of Prelate Batosiparis. Bato was one of the most powerful people in the city. She was one of the twelve prelates of the eponymous Twelve Tables. By law, the twelve were all equal, but it is widely believed that the other eleven did as Bato told them. If we're lucky, maybe they'll just exile us. Think again, friend. This goes sideways and absolutely throwing you under the wagon. If we go down, we go down together. It was the 28th day of Beltane, two days since the disappearance of Featherstone. Alisiria leaned back to look at the mind map she had made on the wall of the private dining room at the Ten Ring Tea Room. She was good friends with the proprietress, Tiberia Hines, and so was often able to use an open room at the tea house for Justicar work. She had thought about returning to the headquarters of the Justicar, the Presidium, where she would have had full support and resources of the Order, but she didn't know for sure who Quintus was worried about, and she didn't like the idea that someone might be watching her, especially with the Tower of the Twelve Tables literally looking down on the Presidium. So as she sipped the remains of her breakfast tea, 
for perhaps the twelfth time, she again ran through the litany of what she knew. Featherstone was busy. He had serious connections with more people and organizations than your typical innocent person. Bookies in the Vibius district, minor trade nobles throughout Caris and Fadia, private security and some mercenaries throughout the entire western side of the city, fences and aquili, and some calculators and astroseers at the Sidriel Observatory. As far as we know, the last person to see him alive, other than the Harbridge guards, was Aegis Garrison of Sanguine Security. Sanguine had installed most of the warning and the traps in the Harbridge. Garrison says Featherstone was frightened, but had purchased several new security packets for Sanguine. Some really nasty ones, no less. The fear started two weeks ago and hit a big crescendo just one day before he disappeared. Which is why I'm not even sure he didn't remove himself from the Harbridge. Yes, I know there is the shard. Yes, and what we learned from Cyruxus. You know, I don't like the Yagador to begin with. A few more of them around and they won't even need Jessica anymore. But besides that, can we even trust Cyruxus? The poor gnome is blitzed out of his mind on glory or some other street jug. I doubt he's been sober since the Twelve Tables disbarred him. Yagador are specialized trackers within the Justicar order. While some are highly trained divination wizards, the most effective Yagador were born with their gifts. Specialties vary, but in general Yagador could touch an item or a person and track back through their history to learn where they had been, who they had been in contact with, what was going on around them at certain times, and more. The only reason Yagador weren't used to solve every crime is that the gift takes a significant toll. Around the Presidium, cadets enjoyed telling the story of Merhina Calornius. The short version of the tale is that Calornius was one of the first Yagador. While investigating a murder, Calornius turned their special sight on a blade above the mantle. Depending on the telling, blood or brain matter then burst from Calornius's ears, nose, and eyes. It turned out the sword had been in the family for close to two millennia, and poor Calornius's head couldn't handle absorbing 2,000 years' worth of memories in 10 seconds. Whether the story is true or not, the risk is. Cyruxus turned to drinking and drugs to deal with all the memories in his head that were not his. He was removed from the Justicar and now lives in near-permanent oblivion above a scroll shop. I know. If I didn't trust him, why'd I go to him? You don't have to get that tone of voice with me. Elisiria turns to the table, scribbles a few lines on a piece of parchment, then walks to the wall and pins the sheet with the still wet ink into the mind map. There. Cyruxus said our glass shard had only memory fragments. Presumably because it is itself a fragment. We know it saw a gruesome death. Someone devoured whole. And that the person carrying it met Featherstone at the Rampant Star Tavern sometime before Featherstone disappeared. Elisiria gave the wall and all of her clues one more look. Golden peace! But I wouldn't give for a lead that didn't come from a Yagador. Alisiria half stumbles from the back door of the rampant star and into the alley. The blare of troubadour brass and the roaring approval of patrons follow her through the closed door. Her head is throbbing in time with the new bruises and redness on her knuckles, back, and face. <sighs> that could have gone better. She spits blood on the cobblestone of the alley 
and gingerly feels her teeth, checking if any are loose. Buttons, tell me you got that. I'm a little hazy just before and a little bit after that half-elf hit me with the chair. Please, uh, stop. Stop hitting me, I'll talk. I'll tell you what you want to know. Where did Featherstone go after he left here the other night? I, they said something about the Story Rock Trading Company. Featherstone didn't seem to trust that tall human. He's, he wanted to, to see something for himself. It sounded like they had some sort of deal that they did. Alisiria flinches involuntarily at the sound, remembering the feeling and the aftereffects of getting hit by a chair. Then her brows furrow in thought. Was that too easy? Remember when Isidore broke his hand? He pushed a dwarf so many times he broke every bone in his hand. Then that dwarf got up and knocked him out cold. And that was just a bar fight. This dwarf, I hit him, what, half a dozen times? And he folds? Elisiria suddenly remembers the dwarf's face as he told her about the soaring rock. At the time, she thought he was grimacing in pain. Now she wondered if he was grinning. Well, shit. We might not have much time. Elisiria set out directly for the soaring rock trading company. She walked three blocks before she confirmed she was being followed. If the dwarf's grin hadn't put her on edge, she might not have seen the halfling following her. They were good. Very good. Even once she knew they were following her... She sometimes had trouble keeping track of them. Elisiria calmly turned and stopped to look at the fruit of a nearby street hawker. She used her poncho and body to block the line of sight. Then she took buttons from her pocket. Big favor to ask you, friend. I know you will. I need you to take the shard and everything I've told you to Quintus Orias. If any Justicar try to stop you, play them this. This chinchilla is on official business of Justicar Elisiria Gallery. Code phrase, memento vivere. This messenger must reach the Justicar Marshal. Wait here, hidden for five minutes. Then go to Quintus. Let no one see you. And let's hope that I'm wrong about this, and that we'll see each other again soon. Quintus Arias stands in the warehouse of the Soaring Rock Trading Company. He scans row after row of shelves holding glass spheres. The spheres are half-filled with a strange green liquid that shifts and moves like a stalking beast. Justicars, Magistars, and the City Guard move through the warehouse securing it. A small, clockwork chinchilla named Buttons sits on Quintus's shoulder. There is no sign of Alisiria Gallerine. Justicar Marshal? Go on. Dome, the Shining Force are moving their people in. They'll take control of the building and set a guard to lock all this down. Any sign of Justicar Gallerine or the former Yagador? Not really, Dome. We found evidence of an anti-magic field in the home of Seruxus Thaddeus and another one in this warehouse. The working theory is that they perished the same way Featherstone did. Go on. If the Shining Force are correct, it's called the Glutton. It's a combination of alchemy, herbalism, and magic that, well, honestly, I only understand half of what they said. The part I understood, that shit gets out of the glass, it eats until there's nothing left to eat. They want to study more to be certain, but they're pretty sure this is the stuff that destroyed the city of Arthamore. This? 
Killed an entire city? The force captain said they estimate there's enough of this stuff to destroy Praham seven times over. The two stand in silence. Awe and fear seem to gather in the air. Quintus's hand begins to shake ever so slightly. He balls it into a fist and wraps it in his other hand. I'm sorry, Domi. What was that? Something an old friend used to say. He thumbs but doesn't release the catch on a weapon slung at his hip. Let's go. We've got work to do. Elisirius saved the city. It would be a shame if we fucked it up now. We're going to find the people who did this. They are very clever, but they underestimate Elisiria. We're going to make them pay for it. This episode was a special feature for International Podcast Month. You can find actual play, audio drama, and non-fiction podcast episodes, blog posts, interviews with creators, and more at internationalpodcastmonth.com. Please use the hashtag IMP2019 to comment on this and any other special IMP features this September. You can find me, Thomas Marsetti, at Wild Endeavors on Twitter and Instagram. As always, we hope you find someone special to share your adventures with, and we'd love to have you back for more Wild Endeavors.